Today's scripture is Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm, the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Though you we push down, through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us, and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The word of the Lord. It's good to see you all once again. Um, my name is Jake. This is the last week of our series in the Psalms that we've been doing over the summer. And next week, uh, our pastor Steve is going to be preaching again, thank God. Um, LAUGHTER it's like, finally, we're done with all these hacks we've had to deal with all summer. Get the pro in there. Um, so this is our last week, and it's going to be a little bit full circle. So this is a similar theme to the first sermon that was preached in the series by Dan. Um, but, but it's a little bit different angle. And that's what's beautiful about Scripture. That's what's beautiful about the gospel. So it's like a diamond. It's got all these angles, and you shine the light on it, and it's beautiful, but you turn from a different angle, and the light shines differently, but it's just as beautiful. And you keep looking around, and, and there are so many angles of the gospel, of the Scriptures to appreciate as we look at them. So uh, I'm excited to come full circle here and talk about Psalm 44. Uh, so this morning we're looking at, at a psalm in which the writer is very confused. He is uh, hurt. He's trying to both plead with God and understand why God is doing what he's doing all at the same time. Um, And the main question today, the main idea is, how can we trust God? That's what he's grappling with. He's trying to figure out if he can and how he can trust God. How can we trust God? And so he starts out in verse 1. Take a look. He says, Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. So the psalmist starts out by saying, listen, I've heard these stories about this God. I've heard stories about who he is. I've heard stories about what he's done, right? And so how do we know who God is? How do we know anything about God? Well, to quote the great theological masterpiece, Batman Begins, 
it's not who you are underneath, it's what you do that defines you, right? Your action speaks the loudest as to who you are, as to what you're really like, does it not? Um, he knows about who God is because he has heard stories about what God has done. That's how he knows about God's character, about what God is like. Um, my wife is an avid social media poster, right? She has got Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, probably something really cool I don't even know about yet. I don't know. Um, but she posts a lot on those. And so there are times when I will meet someone for the first time and they will say, oh, you had a great trip to the library last week, didn't you? I'm like, I, I did. How did you know that? Um, well, I'm friends with your wife online. Okay. Um, they know of my deeds already by the first time I meet them, Right. They have seen everything I've done for the past six months. They've seen every meal I've eaten for the last six months. <laughs> right? And so we come into this relationship. They already have an idea of who I am. They know what I have done. And so they know a little bit about my character. Just a little bit about, about what makes up me as a person. Right? Um, and their knowledge of my deeds and my actions directly affects the way that we interact with each other. That's the way we all are. So if you have a friend that you've been friends with for 15 years, right, and you, uh, you have a bunch of shared experiences, you know what they think, what they've said, what they've done. You have a, a foundation, a, a solidity to your relationship, right? There's an ease there. It's easy to trust that person because you already know them really well. Now, maybe there's someone else that you've known, but they have, their actions, their deeds have hurt you. They've caused you pain. Um, that person is not so easy to trust, right? You know that person by their deeds, and you might be very cold and standoffish to them. What you know about somebody, about what they have done, informs the way that you interact with them. Now, this speaks a bit to the way we relate to God. Your interaction with him uh, is directly affected by what you know of him, and you know him by what you read of what he's done, what you've heard of what he's done. Uh, you know him mostly by reading the Bible, right? God has said, if you're going to know me by what I've done, I'm going to have a book that's going to list most of the cool things I've ever done. And you're going to have that, and it's going to teach you about who I am, about what I'm like. And so he's already given us a great resource to know him. Um, you hear stories about other believers, what's he, what he's done in their lives. And so that helps you once again to, to get an idea of what this God is like, right? You know him by what he's done. And if you don't know anything about God, then your interactions with him are probably fleeting, right? Much like someone that you're meeting for the first time. It's not like you have an easy relationship all of a sudden. For the most part, you have to kind of muddle through some small talk and, and you need to get to know them before there's a solidity to that relationship. And it's not easy to trust someone right off the bat, right? You trust someone that you know really well. And so to trust God, to bring him your burdens, to bring him your pains, to bring him your fears and your anxieties, you need to know him. And so he's given us resources to know him. And so the psalmist right here is saying, God, I know you because I, I have heard the stories about what you've done. I've heard the stories of your deeds and your actions. I know who you are. And look, look in verse 2. We'll see the stories he's talking about. He's talking about a very specific set of stories about God. He says in verse 2, With your own hand you drove out the nations, you, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Right, the stories that the psalmist is referencing is about God giving the Israelites what's called the promised land. So way back in the Bible, there was a man named Abram, and God came to Abram and he said, Abram, you are going to be my favored family. 
you are going to have a bunch of descendants, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your family, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. You're going to be my favored people. I'm just going to show you special kindness. I mean, in Genesis 15, God promises Abraham that his descendants, he says, your descendants are going to be slaves for a little while, and then they're going to be wanderers, they're going to be sojourners, kind of nomadic people for a while, and then uh, your, your descendants are going to be given this, this land, this territory, and I'm going to plant them there, and I'm going to bless them. I'm going to give them prominence. I'm going to bless your family. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Abraham's descendants, for a while, they were slaves in Egypt, but then God freed them, and then they were kind of a nomadic people in the wilderness for 40 years. But then comes the time where God says, all right, here we go. It's time to take hold of this promise I made. I promised you this land. That's why it's called the promised land. I promised you this land, and now it's time to take it. Now, the problem is there were some people that already lived there, people called the Canaanites, and they were very large in stature. They were imposing physically. Uh, They had mighty armies. They had cities that were well-fortified. Right? Not the kind of people that you just ask to leave and they're like, oh, okay, cool. Well, we're out. That's not the way it was going to work. And uh, so God said, all right, I'm going to ask you to go into this land and to drive these people out. That's what he says to the Israelites. And I'm going to be with you. And so if you just trust me, if you just obey me, I'm going to give you victory. Right? The Lord says the Canaanites are evil people. We're going to drive them from this land. And I want you to have this land. I want to plant you here. And so, sure enough, that's the way it happened. Whenever the Israelites were trusting and obedient toward God, they had victory. They were beating armies that they had no business beating, right? They, they weren't that imposing. They weren't a mighty force uh, comparatively. And yet, they were winning all these battles because the Lord was with them. Now, there were also some times when they were disobedient to God, and they didn't trust him. And in those cases, they lost the battles that they should have lost. In that case, reality starts to set in. But after some time... Uh, There has been enough trust and obedience to where uh, the Lord gets what he wants, right? He drives the Canaanites out of the land, and he plants the Israelites there and makes them a great nation. So that's the stories that the psalmist is referencing here. Now, um, how do these stories show the psalmist who God is? What are the characteristics of God that kind of come out in these stories, uh, that kind of inform the psalmist's understanding of God's character? Well, I think the first thing that, that he sees in these stories is that God is powerful. Right? He says, you with your own hand drove out the nations. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm. He's saying, this powerful God is the one who brought about all these victories, is the one who brought about this conquest. And God did some unbelievably powerful, crazy things here in this particular time. So there was a city called Jericho. Right? And Jericho was one of the most fortified cities in the land. Um, unbelievably impenetrable, right? So the Israelites don't know how they're going to attack this city. And the Lord says, Don't worry about it, I got you. What I want you to do is I want you to get the band together, march around the city a few times, which makes a lot of strategic sense. Um, and I like to envision it, this is totally historically inaccurate, but I like to envision it as like a, a New Orleans. Uh, kind of street band playing Dixieland jazz. Um, once again, historically inaccurate, but that's the way I like to envision it. And so they, they march around the city. They do this for a few days. And then sure enough, the Lord says, all right. And then the walls just crumble, right? And then the, the people in Jericho go into a panic and the Israelites win the day. That's power right there. The Lord is using something that seems foolish and weak and then uses it to completely crumble uh, really mighty people. 
There's another time when the Israelites are going uh, into battle and the Lord sends a hailstorm and just starts pelting the enemy with hail. And the Bible's really clear. It's like more, more of the enemy died from hail that day than from the Israel army. Um, the, the Lord did a mighty act there. Another time, the Israelites were in a battle and they were, they were doing well, but they needed more time. And the, the scriptures say this has never happened before or since, but it says the Lord stopped the sun in the sky. And he said, you need more time? I'll give you more time. That's crazy. That's unbelievable, right? This is a powerful God. A God who upends the natural order. A God who crushes cities. A God who stops the sun in the sky. Who commands wind and storms. This is a powerful God. And so as we read this, let's ask the question of ourselves. How do God's actions inform your understanding of him? I'm sure there are difficult things in your life, right? There is, I'm sure, probably some kind of family or relational distress. Um, Maybe you are addicted. Maybe you are unemployed. Maybe you're having a hard time stirring up the gumption to care about anything. Right? There are hard things in your life. There are ways in which your life is less than ideal. I'm positive of it. And at the very least, there, there is a real enemy in Satan and in sin, things that are, are wanting your destruction. Those are real no matter who you are. And so there are, there are difficulties, there are, are threats in your life. And the question is, in your heart of hearts, do you think that God has the power to save or change you? What do your actions say about what you believe there? Do you believe that God has the power to save you and change you? Now, you may very well understand by now, if, if, if you have much experience in life, uh, you've probably come to the conclusion that there are many ways in which you can't change yourself, right? Deep down, you may, uh, you may start reading The New Yorker. You may start trying to listen to obscure bands and, and get really hip. You may try to... Um, gain financial gains. You may change jobs. You may buy a BMW. You may do any number of things to try and change yourself. You may, you may go to the community college and take some classes. You may get a new degree. You, whatever you do, right? There are ways in which you really can change yourself, and yet somewhere deep down in your heart of hearts, you're still broken. You're still self-centered. You're still prideful. And you can't seem to be able to change that. All these other things are like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic you can't seem to change what's really wrong in your heart. So can this God, who upended the natural order by stopping the sun in the sky and sending hailstorms, can he upend the natural order of your heart? Can he take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh that loves people and loves him and is obedient? Can he do it? And from what we know of this God, the answer is yes. But do you believe it? So what else do these stories tell us about who God is? Well, they also tell us that God is loving. So it's very clear in these stories and in our psalm that God is uniquely loving the Israelites. He's uniquely blessing them in different ways than he blesses the other peoples, in different ways than he treats the other peoples. He loves them specially. It says, uh, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but then you planted. So he's saying that he drove out the Canaanites, but he planted the Israelites. He said, you afflicted the, the peoples, the Canaanites, But then you set free the Israelites. And then it it says you delighted in them. You delighted in your people. Now let's just make it really clear. Before this, the Israelites were not really a a lovely people, right? They're not someone that you would immediately say, man, 
easy to love those people, right? They kind of waffle in their relationship with God a lot. Sometimes, just like, just like me, probably just like you, sometimes they're, they're really gung-ho. They're like, yes, we want to obey God. Yes, we trust him. We love him. And those times are good, but there are other times when they clearly don't trust God. There are times when they clearly disobey God. There are times when they out and out rebel against God. And yet, despite that, this God has voluntarily bound his heart up in this people. He has made them the object of his delight. And that's kind of a weird thing to say. These people make God happy. Seeing them succeed makes God happy. Blessing them makes God happy. Enacting his salvation plan for the entire world through this people makes God happy. Despite their inconsistent feelings toward God, God fiercely loves them. And he is intent on doing good to them in ways that he doesn't do good to other people. He loves these people specially. And he's intent on blessing them. So now I ask you, if you are a believer today, a believer in Christ, do you believe that God finds joy in you that way? Think about your life. Think about who you are. Think about what you've done. Do you think that God could delight in you? That you might make him happy. That blessing you might make him really happy. If you're like me, sometimes, once again, you're really into doing good and loving God and being obedient, but other times you're really into serving yourself and being selfish, being prideful, being disobedient, rebelling against God. And in those times, do you think that he still delights in you. There's another psalm that we actually saw on the screen earlier. It says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. The scripture seems to say that he has bound his heart up in his people, in us. He has bound his heart up in us. And it makes him happy to offer us salvation in Christ. And so if you are in Christ today, if you're a believer, if you have faith in Jesus then he looks at you the same way he looked at the Israelites. He looks at you, and you are his delight. Sometimes that makes me uncomfortable, because I don't feel like I should be his delight. And yet, the good news, the gospel is, it doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done. If he is intent on saving you and blessing you, he will do so. If you are in Christ, you are his delight. And in saving you, he is making it so that he can offer you the greatest gift possible, right? He is all goodness. He is all glory. He is all wonder and joy. And because he has saved you, he can now offer you himself. What separated you before, your sin, he has gotten rid of. And so now he says, now you can have me. We can be in a relationship. You can partake and enjoy the greatest gift this universe has to offer God himself. He wants to do good to you for eternity. And now as we read this psalm, there's one more of God's characteristics that starts to become a little bit apparent, and that is that God is sovereign. So look in verse 4. He says, You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. Right, the psalmist here, said, he's asking God, he's saying, ordain salvation for us. And what he's implying there is because our fate's not really up to us. We cannot save ourselves. If we're going to be saved, it's going to have to be you. So save us. 
Now, the word sovereign just means that God can do whatever he thinks is best, right? And as the creator and sustainer of the universe, right, he made this whole thing, and it would all fall apart if he weren't holding it all together. As the creator and sustainer, it is his right to do as he sees fit, to do whatever he thinks is best. It is his right to decide who to destroy and who to bless. It is his right to decide who to save and who to shame, we see in this psalm. And in this particular case, he wanted to bless the Israelites. Um, He wanted for them to take this land and to enjoy its blessings, not the Canaanites who were already living there. That was his decision, and he made it happen. He actively led the Israelites to victory in battle. He actively saved them from their foes. He actively drove the Canaanites from the land. He was actively working to do the things that he wanted to be done. So one of the things that we believe as a church, is that God is still sovereign and he is still active in this world, right? This isn't a world that he has just spun up like a clock and walked away from. No, he is actively working for his good pleasure now. He's actively making things happen that he wants to happen now. He cares too much to just leave us on our own, right? He has a mission, he has a plan for the world, and he is actively working to enact that plan for salvation, for grace, right? He's actively working in our hearts, to drive evil out of our hearts and replace it with holiness and grace. He is actively working to use us in the world to proclaim the good news, the gospel, so that we can replace evil in the world with goodness and grace through the power of his spirit. God is actively working in the world. He is sovereignly directing the events of your past, present, and future in order to bring himself glory. No matter who you are, Whether you are a believer or not, he is actively working to bring himself glory through your life. Now, there is a way that's going to bring about joy, so I would plead with you, please, believe, have faith in Christ. That is a glory that comes with joy for you as well. But no matter who you are, he is actively working in your past, present, and future to bring himself glory. And in some ways, like we take take offense at that, right? We are a very independent, individualized, self-made people. And so we like to say, God, I don't think I like that. I think I want to be the master of my own fate. I think I want to be the captain of my own ship. I want to guide my own steps. No, thank you. I don't want a God guiding me, directing me. And yet if you stop and think about that for a minute, that is oh so foolish. Because how many millions of decisions do you have to make already every day? How many millions of decisions are already made for you every day? by other people, by uh, your environment, by your background. Think about if every decision you made every day actually affected your eternal fate. I'm scared by that. (laughs) I can't handle it. I'm I'm not smart enough, wise enough, or good enough to make the right decision a million times every day. So praise God that he's directing my steps. Right? That is incredibly freeing to me, that our sovereign God would guide and direct and do his good pleasure. Praise God for that. The psalmist here says, um, I do not trust in my bow or sword. He knows. He knows that he's not trustworthy. He says, it's you who saves us. Friends, we don't have to trust ourselves to make the right decisions all the time for our eternal fates. We can trust 
in our good and powerful creator who's actually capable to make these decisions and to guide us, who actually has good intentions, whereas I usually don't, who's actually worthy of trust. We can trust him in his sovereignty. And in Romans 8, 28, Paul writes, uh, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who are called to God, he is taking all things, be they difficult or be they good, be they easy or uh, be they hard. Whatever is going on, he is working them all together in his good plan for his glory. And if you are a believer in him, for your joy. Praise God that we can trust our sovereign God. Okay, so just to recap, that's the first half of the psalm. Uh, the first half of the psalm tells us who God is. So he's powerful enough to do what he wants. He loves his people, and so he wants to do good things for his people, and he is sovereignly working to bless them, right? So that's what the first half of the psalm tells us. But then we take a really drastic turn in verse 9. So check out verse 9. It says, after the psalmist has said, I know who you are, I know that you're all these things because of the stories I've heard, but then he says, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So what's happening here? It seems that Israel has gone into battle and has not fared well. Uh, they have been beaten and they have been humiliated. And the psalmist uh, is saying, God, we're disgraced, we're shamed, we're beaten, and it is your fault. That's what he's saying right here. This is all your fault. He says it really pointedly. He says, you have rejected and disgraced us. You let our enemies take things from us. You have humiliated us and made us ashamed of ourselves. This is the crisis moment where the psalmist is coming to ask the question, is God trustworthy here? I've heard the stories that say that he is, but in my experience right now, I'm not sure. Is this God worthy of my trust? And when we get to those moments, when we get to those crisis moments, there are usually two ways that we turn. The first is to say, this is all up to me now, right? I'm not sure if God's trustworthy, but, but I know that bad things are happening, and it's probably because of, of my actions. If I did better, if I performed better, if I would just pray more, if I would give more, if I would be of more service to people, if I would work harder, if I would have made the right decisions, this is all up to me. If I would have done those things, I wouldn't be in this circumstance. So it's all up to me now. I'm going to fix it. I'm the trustworthy one. We think the reason bad things are happening to us are because of what we have done, and we believe that the only solution is for us to do better. That is one of the ways that we might turn in these crisis moments. Now, the other way um, we see in the psalm, actually. The other route uh, that you may think is that you may think you've done everything right, and the fact that your legalism isn't rewarded kind of destroys your psyche. So look in verse 17. The psalmist says, All this has come upon us. He's talking about uh, their shame and their humiliation. He says, Though we have not forgotten you, we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us. The psalmist here is kind of tipping his hand. He's showing his own self-righteousness in this moment. 
He says, God, you have shamed us and let us see defeat, even though we have worshiped you and we've obeyed you. He says, we have done the things we're supposed to do. So where are you? We're the good guys. We're supposed to win. We're the ones that have obeyed and worshiped you. We've done everything right. Now you owe us victory. God, you owe us. Can you relate to the Israelites here a little bit? Let me ask you, when things are not going well for you, what are you tempted to think? Which one of these ways are you tempted to go? When your family is in turmoil, when your car breaks down and you're already broke, when you're single and you really want a spouse, but it doesn't look like that's happening right now and you're lonely, when you get passed over for the sale or the promotion, when you or your family get really sick, which way are you tempted to go? Are you tempted to leave God out of it and say, this is up to me now. If this is going to get better, I'm going to have to work harder. I'm going to have to do better. I'm the trustworthy one. Or are you tempted to say like the psalmist, God, where are you? I'm doing my best here. I'm trying to love you and to serve you. I don't deserve this. You've got it wrong. You owe me. And so why are you letting me suffer? Which one of those ways are you tempted to go? These are the moments when it is difficult to trust God. It's difficult. So let's recap here one more time. The psalmist says, God, I've heard of your deeds, and I know that you're powerful, that you're sovereign, and that you love us. So I know that you're powerful enough to end my suffering. I know that you say you love me, and so you want to do good things for me. I know that you're sovereign, so nothing's going to stop you from ending my suffering. And even more than that, I don't feel like I've done anything to deserve hardship So why am I here? Why am I beaten, humiliated, and ashamed? How do these things go together, he's asking. Right? You say you're powerful and good and sovereign, and yet I'm suffering. How does that go together? How could it be that you would use your power to sovereignly orchestrate hardship and humiliation in our lives and still say that it's for good? How do those things go together? And where does he go to ask those questions? Oddly enough, he goes to the very person he blames for his troubles. Look in verse 23. He goes to God himself. He says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Right? The psalmist here has just gone on a rant about how God is to blame for their suffering. But at the end of the psalm, he recognizes still that he is dependent on God. He knows that even though the Lord has brought trouble upon him, the Lord is also the only one who can save him and comfort him. I have a one and a half year old, a little daughter named Hazel. And there are times when she is clearly doing something that she's not supposed to and she knows it, right? And so she knows she's not supposed to climb up on the coffee table in the living room. But there are times when she will go over to it and she will look back at me and then she will start to climb on the coffee table and I have to yell at her, right? I have to say, Hazel, no, no. You know that that's not right. And then in that moment, when I yell at her, when I discipline her, her face starts to crumple up and I don't know if it's the combination of shame and fear and dejection, but like she starts to slowly cry and it's kind of a heartbreaking moment, right? I have to discipline her. I have to help her be a a better human being, and yet 
It's clearly hurt her. But what does she do at that moment? She walks over to me, the one who has just yelled at her. She holds up her arms. Because I'm the source of discipline, right? But she knows I'm also the source of comfort. She knows I'm going to bend down. I'm going to pick her up. And I love her. So we see it here. The psalmist who sees God bringing suffering about in his life, he, he also knows, he knows, God, you are causing suffering and hardship in my life, but, but you love me. And you're the only place I can go to, for comfort. You're the only place I can go for healing. You're the only place I can go. What we see, and the psalmist turns back to God for help at the end of the psalm, are two things that God loves to enact in his people. We see redemption and we see dependence. See, our God is very much in the business of taking hardship and suffering, the, the kind of thing that sin has brought into this world, right? This world was perfect until hardship and suffering came into it because of sin. But the Lord delights in taking hardship and suffering and turning it into blessing. And you're turning it into redemption. The Apostle Paul is a man who suffered a great deal for the sake of the gospel, writes in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. As we look at this psalm about shame that the psalmist feels, the hardship, the suffering, the pain. We see from this verse in Romans that this powerful and sovereign God was acting in love all along. That because he takes, suf- because he takes suffering and he turns it into endurance, character, and ultimately hope, he takes hardship and turns it into blessing. Because when things are going well, we tend to be self-sufficient, right? We tend to believe I've got things under control. We tend to say, I don't need my God, or we just don't think about him, right? He becomes an afterthought because I, everything seems to be going well. And I start to build a little bit of self-righteousness. But when hardship comes, I cannot help but admit my dependence on God. I cannot help but come to him in my need, and need for him to turn this suffering into hope through the power of grace. Let's take a look at verse 18 once again, but let's look at it through a different angle. The psalmist says, Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us. And the psalmist seems to be saying here, he's, he's saying, We've been good to you, God. Our hearts are set on you, and yet you seem to be breaking us. He thinks, God, you owe us riches and victory and ease because our hearts are set toward you. The psalmist has his heart set toward God, but what he doesn't seem to realize is that every heart set toward God is a heart that is being transformed. And transformation always requires pain. It seems that suffering is a tool in God's process of breaking down our idols, our sin, 
our self-sufficiency and our self-righteousness, our anxieties and our fears. He is breaking those things down through hardship and pain so that he can rebuild us again in the ways of grace so that he can transform our hearts. He wants to rebuild us again to make us whole. Right? We, we keep stacking on these layers of self-righteousness, of pleasure, of piddly power, of finances. Right? We stack these things on top of each other and think we're building something, but we're not. We're building a ladder to destruction. And so he comes in and he wipes those things away. And it feels painful. It feels like he's breaking us. But he's doing it so that he can rebuild us and make us whole again. One of my favorite songs from Isaac Wardell says, Take us, O Lord, and all we have known. Shape us, O Lord, and form us into your own. Take every heart and know every sin. Break us, O Lord, so that we may be whole again. Our Lord breaks us to make us whole again. He uses temporary suffering to bring about eternal blessing. And the ultimate show, friends, the ultimate show of God taking suffering and turning it into blessing is in Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of this entire psalm. In verse 24, the psalmist says, Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? And in verse 22, he says, For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But listen to this description of Jesus from Isaiah 53. It says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Right, the psalmist accuses God of forgetting his affliction and oppression, but God has not forgotten at all. In fact, God has taken the affliction and oppression upon himself in Jesus so that we would not have to face the oppression and affliction of sin and death anymore. The psalmist says his people are, are like sheep being slaughtered for the sake of God, when in all actuality is God himself in Jesus who is slaughtered like a sheep for our sakes. Jesus suffers the torture, pain, and death that we deserve so that we would not have to face them anymore. So that our suffering would not be an end, but would be a means to grace and glory and blessing. Because Jesus suffers on our behalf, God promises that he we will enjoy every blessing that Jesus earned. We will enjoy relationship with God again. We will enjoy life with him. This is the suffering of Jesus being turned into the blessing of God's people, our blessing. In Jesus, God's actions, right? When God, God shows himself, he shows who he is by his actions, remember? His actions here prove that he is powerful and that he loves us and that he is sovereign because though it looks like weakness, Jesus' death is actually power because he defeats the powers of sin and death and resurrects on the third day. His death and his resurrection prove that God loves us because God himself would sacrifice his only son for us and that self-sacrifice is the epitome of love. And finally, in Jesus, God enacts his sovereign plan to save and bless his people forever. (laughs) Friends, today, if you are suffering, if you are confused, if you feel alone, if you're questioning whether God is trustworthy, you can look to Jesus and you can identify with him because he has suffered. He has been alone. He's been turned away from. You can trust him. Friends, I know your pain is real. It is real. 
It's painful. It hurts. And the fact that this psalm is in the Bible at all validates your pain, right? The Lord says, this is worthy of writing about in my eternal book, but it also guides you in how to respond. So come to God. Our God is the only source of salvation and comfort, remember? And so if you are feeling suffering, pain today, if you are questioning whether or not you can trust him, come to him with those questions. Come to him with those burdens, with that anguish. Come to our God. And though he may or may not take your pain away, you can plead with him to use your suffering to bring about hope, to bring about grace, and to bring about blessing. And for those of us who have seen and known his goodness, his grace, and his worthiness in Jesus, we know that we can trust him. We've seen it before. So friends, today, ask him for help. Ask him to help you to trust him. Ask him to help you in your suffering, in your hardship, to be changed for good. For the glory of God, for the joy that comes with the gospel. We're going to have some reflection questions that we're going to ask you to pray over, to think through this. And we're going to take communion. We're going to celebrate the fact that Christ offers us salvation and joy because of his death and his resurrection. So I'm going to pray for us right now. Lord, we're grateful that when times are hard, that you do not uh, leave us to ourselves. That you would bring about comfort and blessing and salvation for your people. We thank you that you have not left us because we we, uh, leave you so often, but you have stayed with us. And you are intent on doing good by us. Thank you. Lord, I pray today that for those of us who are suffering, for those of us who are confused and in hardship, that you would bring about peace, that you would bring about trust, that you would bring about assurance that you are in control and that you will bring about goodness for your people, that you take suffering and hardship and you turn it into good things somehow. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe that and to trust you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.